first satsang of the year, I uh, meditated, I contemplated on the energy of the previous year, on the energy of this coming year, what we expect. And um, in spite of the fact that the world is very disturbed by, by the things which are happening to it, I said it very clearly, we in Agama, those who do a lot of yoga and who are interested in the transcendental and metaphysical topics, we considered it a good year. It was good because it gave us time to be alone, it gave us time to isolate ourselves, it gave us time to contemplate the truths of the universe. And so, it is always true that for spiritual people, sometimes things are exactly the other way around than they are for the world. It was Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita who said, when it is daytime for the world, it is the darkest night for the yogis, and when it is night for the world, then the yogis are wide awake. <clears throat> like, if you take the mentality of a Buddha, who is going for nirvana, 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 then what does he care that the dodo birds will disappear, or there will be too much carbon dioxide, or there will be... It's like these are completely unimportant issues for some people who are fanatically concerned with spiritual matters. Of course, uh, this rabbit hole is much deeper, and that's not where I intend to go tonight, on the fact that spirituality is opposing the world. Spirituality goes against the world. People with their desires, with their attachment, with their maya being hypnotized by the law of illusion, People are building a world in which they have a thousand things about which to be ambitious and to yearn and to desire. And all those ambition things, they are just, for many yogis, they are just vanity and emptiness and nothing and a waste of time and a waste of energy. And um, that depends very much on what form of yoga you practice because it's very different between a person who does tantric yoga and a person who practices Vedantic spirituality. A person who does the Theravada Buddhism from Thailand and a person who does the Vajrayana Buddhism from Tibet. Thus, of course, the most important thing is what kind of path do you practice? What is your path? to your desire. It is understood that if you are a bit of a spiritual person, then you have a spiritual desire. If you are not a spiritual person, you can still use yoga because you can say, I don't know, I have an ulcer in the stomach and the doctors want to cut a part of my brain to heal my ulcer in the stomach. Isn't there another method where I just eat vegetarian and do 25 Udhyana Bandhas in the morning and do, I don't know what, work on Manipura Chakra? 
can I avoid having my brain cut? No, is the medical method, the modern medical method, the only method? No, and then some people fall in love with yoga, but not because yoga takes them to nirvana, because those people are not interested in nirvana at all. They are interested in yoga because it can heal your stomach without cutting your brain. No, I'm talking from a concrete case, which I'm giving often as example in my lectures with one of my childhood friends who had problems with his stomach and the doctors came to the conclusion that it is because of his brain and they wanted to cut a part of his brain to calm down his stomach. No? So eventually he did yoga and diet and in three weeks he stopped having problems with his stomach for the rest of his life. And therefore, of course, you can fall in love with yoga for a hundred perks, for a hundred benefits which yoga brings, and it can bring those benefits to people who are selfish, to people who are materialistic, to people who are not spiritual. Everybody can heal their stomach by yoga. Now, even if they are not interested in nirvana, it works anyway for everybody. So, we know, I'm divagating, we know that um, there is an interest for the spiritual part of yoga, which means how to find myself, how to find who am I and what I'm doing on this planet. Because some people take it for granted. Eat, drink and be merry. Sure, you can live your life like this. Like I can live my life like I want to eat and drink and be merry. No, but Swami Shivananda was a bit more plastic. He said eating, sleeping, procreating. No, like you can eat for, you can live a life just like an animal, saying for me good food, good drink, good sleep, good sex, and I'm happy. But some people cannot. Some people cannot. Either they are inferior or they are superior. Either this is a blessing or a curse, fact is that some people cannot just eat and sleep and procreate and be happy. It doesn't make them happy. After they do all the eating and all the drinking and all the procreating and all the sleeping, then they still feel empty. And then when they feel empty, they want something more. They want a meaning. Like, am I here as an entity which is connected to the infinite? And I come from somewhere and I go somewhere and will I reach the infinite? Or is it all just a very strange biochemical, electrochemical accident? And I'm here as a nobody and I will die here as a nobody and everybody is a nobody. There is no Buddha, there is no Jesus, there is no Krishna. It's all just a horrible Statistic accident, carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen, and that's the end of it. And therefore, there is no meaning. And therefore, you can as well say, uh, I want to stuff my face, I want to sleep, I want to f fulfill my sexual instincts, I want to do whatever I want to do which makes me happy, and that's it. When I die, I give the finger to the whole universe and I'm gone, I stop existing. No, there are people who can live like that. And they do. Many, many people. But there are some people for whom it is revolting. They have something inside which says, no, if I were to live like this, then I prefer, like Jean-Paul Sartre said, he said it in another way, but nevertheless the conclusion was the same. He says, life is so depressive and meaningless 
that you can as well commit suicide today. He said, don't postpone it for tomorrow. Kill yourself today. Because it's like every day which you live is a nonsense. No? That's the famous essence of existentialism. No, the famous pseudo-philosophy which Jean-Paul Sartre gave to the world is a philosophy of suicide. It's a philosophy like nothing makes sense. Nothing has sense because existence is an empty, meaningless, accidental, chemical event in this universe. And therefore, whatever you do won't make any difference. You don't go anywhere. Nothing is nothing. And therefore, you can as well commit suicide. Like, why should you live with some rosy, pinky hopes for the next 50 years of your life so that in the end you discover that it was all empty and all you did was just like an animal stuff your face and breathe oxygen and convert it in carbon dioxide. No, like why not just leave? So in spirituality, people are trying to find the meaning to things. And again, this could be a mental disease. Maybe the healthy thing is that you live like an animal and you don't ask yourself questions. And you just eat, sleep, procreate, and that makes you happy. But some of us have this mental problem. Maybe we are the handicapped ones. When you look at Ramakrishna and Milarepa and all the rest, Shankara and the great ones, on one hand you see that they are weirdos, on the other hand, you cannot stop noticing that they are very wonderful people. That they are people who changed the history of the planet and they had very important contributions to the human spirit. So, if spirituality is a form of madness, then we have to say that in general it seems to be a very beneficial madness because it brought morality, it brought ethics, it brought compassion, it brought a lot of wonderful things to this world. And if somebody would say, if by an imaginary power, I could eliminate all the spiritual people who lived in the 2,000, 3,000 years on this planet, I wish they were all dead and they never lived on the face of the... They were all put in a mental asylum because they are all crazy people, handicapped people, afflicted with a rare mental disease, which is called spirituality. Aspiration and spirituality. Then, I assume... My observation is that our planet would be hell. If those 100,000 spiritual people from history would not have been there, we would live in a terrible hell. We would live in a terrible place. That's why, even if spirituality is weird for some people, and they cannot understand it, they cannot understand why couldn't Ramakrishna sleep quietly at night. Why did he have an itch up his ass to worship Kali, to worship Shiva, to meditate? To Like, you know, he could have as well eaten, sleep, slept and procreated. Why did Ramakrishna not want to have a life of eating, sleeping, procreating and stay quiet? No. So again I'm saying, maybe he was mentally insane. He sometimes did behave in a very hysterical way in his life. But his existence was proven to have been a huge blessing for large numbers of people. There are people even today, 150 years later after he passed away, who say thank God for Ramakrishna 
You know, without Ramakrishna, we wouldn't be where we are, and many other praises. So, um, I'm not going to go in this direction as well. We take it for a fact that many people, out of which some are here in Agama, because that's why they are in Agama, they are tormented by this special mental disease that they want to hug God. They want to see God. They want to reach eternal life. They want to be free. They want to reach freedom and immortality and uh, the power of God and everything. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, all the huge things that you have heard about and most people can't even believe that they exist. And there are people who are ready to sit down four hours per day and try to get them. Like they are investing time. They are investing energy. They are investing their life in actually trying to find some things which other people don't even think that they exist. So, with spirituality, when we tackle the spiritual part of yoga, we are addressing a special category of people. You have to, if you are born for this, then you understand what I have been saying the last 10 minutes. If you are not born for it, You shrug your shoulders and you say, I'm glad I visited Agama because it's a bit of a madhouse. It's a circus. It's a weird place. It's a zoo. You know, you find all sorts of strange animals in this Agama. Most of them are cuckoo a little bit and they stand on their head because they want to become like Buddha or something like this. Ah! No. So, it's fine. It's spiritual people are used to be considered weirdos and freaks. They have always been in the last thousands of years. They considered Buddha to be a weirdo and they tried to assassinate him several times. They considered Jesus to be a weirdo. They considered Milarepa to be a weirdo. They considered Ramakrishna to be a weirdo. Everybody in spirituality is considered by the 99% other, the rest of the society. Like, why are these people longing for something which doesn't even interest me this much. No. Why are they fretting for all these things? Aren't they crazy? Aren't they stupid? Aren't they misguided? Shouldn't they get a lithium pill, like for schizophrenics, you know, get, give them a lithium pill so they, start, they stop raving, they stop hallucinating? Because these people might be hallucinating for something highly unhealthy or whatever this is. So... While we accept our status in the world, that spirituality, especially in the Kali Yuga in which we live, is a rare bird, maybe in Satya Yuga, the majority of the society wishes spirituality, and those who don't wish spirituality, they are the weirdos. But now, in the time where we live, which is called in India and Tibet Kali Yuga, in Kali Yuga it's the other way around. Spirituality... Krishna, 4,000 years ago, was telling to Arjuna, Oh, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, one is willing to do something concretely for their spiritual improvement. One person in a thousand means 0.1% of the population. And I think that nowadays it's less than in the time of Krishna. So, you have a country of 10 million people, If in 10 million people you have 1,000 people who want to do 
spirituality. And if their teacher tells them to reach spirituality, you need to stop eating beef and pork. Can you do that? Some people say, no, 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 God is asking too much of me. I cannot stop eating beef and pork. If that's what it takes, I will keep eating beef and pork and fuck the spirituality. There are people who say that and they do that. Other people, they say, okay, I'm willing to cut off my left hand. Like if beef and pork are an obstacle, I will give up beef and pork. I love them. But I can live without them if the reward is that I can reach the spiritual things higher. So this means that you do something practical. You don't just talk about it or speculate about it like you are a professor in philosophy. You actually practically, pragmatically do something. You make concrete efforts for this. So, in spirituality, we admit this thing, that although spirituality may look strange, there are among us people, and then they gather under the umbrella of Agama or another spiritual school. They go into a Buddhist Zen monastery in Japan, they go into a Christian monastery in Mount Athos in Greece or something. The other people from the society, they look and they say, weirdos, weirdos, freaks. You know, it's like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't follow in their footsteps. It's normal. And therefore, in yoga, we find this approach. We find this intent that some people are willing to make small efforts, middle efforts or huge efforts for that. And they don't seek for the understanding of the other people. If the family and friends and society understands you, good. If they think you are a lost weirdo, good as well. You know, it's I'm still following my star because that's something intuitive which comes from the heart. And again, I personally, I've said it often. It's okay if people consider us handicapped in our heads. I think the Ramakrishnas and the Shankaracharyas are the people who saved this world. They are the people who brought light to this world. And actually, they are the cherry on top of the cake. So I obviously don't believe that it's a mental disease. I believe it's a blessing. I believe it's a great gift. And I believe it's unfortunately very rare. I consider myself blessed, not mentally sick, because I have spiritual aspiration. But again, maybe I'm a megalomanic person, and I'm just trying to pamper my ego and to feel good in my shoes, you know. And so other, for other people, if they consider, hey, you are a weirdo and so, it's fine. You know, I can, take, uh, I can have the humbleness to accept that I'm on, the, I'm on a different page. So as we are moving towards this spirituality, we know from the yogic tradition that it is the energy which is the vehicle of transformation. Everything is about energy. The whole universe is energy. Our physical body is energy. It has been over said, and for many people it has become an empty thing. They say, oh, we are all beings of energy. But then in the daily life, they take whatever, a coronavirus vaccine or something. Where is the energy? Where was the theory about we are all energy? Uh, uh, No, if you are energy, why don't you go on 
living with light, like just muhin, you know. Just stop eating food and just eat light by the method of just muhin or something. Live for two years without food. Now, if you really believe in that. For many people, this thing, this new age thing that we are all energy and so on, is just empty words which have been used a little bit too much. And again, without meaning. People have lost the meaning of it. And our emotions are energy and our mind is energy. And in this universe, a lot of things are energy. So when we get frustrated, when we get angry, when we get suicidal, when we get dirty, when we get this, when we get that, it's all energy. And the people who are like Ramakrishna and Shankara, they have a very special type of energy. That's the difference. That's why spirituality... If you want to look at spirituality from the standpoint of tantric yoga, which is very close to physics, to the science of physics, to natural science, the spirituality is a transformation of energy. Whatever energy you have when you came to yoga, that energy can be sublimed, 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 transformed, 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 raised, 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 distilled, 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 refined, 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 until after 30 years of spiritual practice, you are a very different person. Emotionally, energetically, sometimes even physically, if you did practice physical things. When Yogananda died, they noticed with surprise that his body was not stinking and was not rotting. They kept his coffin open for three weeks and his body was not becoming stinky and full of worms and rotting. No? Therefore, there must have been a very special energy in the body of Yogananda, although he didn't look very different. He was a fatty Indian boy you know, who loved his cookies and whatever. You would say, what's so special? Well, when he died, they saw that there was something mysterious about this man and that he was filled up with something else than the normal citizen is. So, we are talking about the transformation of energy, going from partial, imperfect, impure energies to a pure energy. As we know in the Tantric tradition, the ultimate level of energy is called Shakti, and that means simply the life of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the feminine aspect of the universe, the goddess, the mother of the universe, and the tantric tradition like in Kashmiri Shaivism and others says it very clearly. Shakti is the mouth of Shiva by Shiva understanding the consciousness of God. Therefore, to enter in God, you have to enter through his mouth. What's the mouth of God? Shakti. So without energy, the transformation is not possible. We are very happy here in Agama to be the heirs of Tantric Yoga, which does not mean sex. Sex is a tiny part of Tantric Yoga. Tantric Yoga means working with Shakti, working with energy. Sometimes Tantrism is called in academic circles Shaktism, like you are going into the Shakti, worshipping the aspect of Shakti, transforming with the help of Shakti. 
So using Shakti, that's why when we do yoga, we constantly focus on the energy. What does the energy do when you stand on your head? If you cannot answer that question, then your headstand becomes a gymnastics. It's a physical exercise. It becomes yoga in the moment when you focus on the energy of every... When you repeat a mantra, like the mantra Aum, what's happening to the energy? Where does the energy go? How does it transform? No, if you don't know the answer to that, again, repeating a mantra becomes a monkey job. It's not yoga. So we are focusing a lot on this energy angle. We are very happy because this comes hand in glove to our practices. And the yogis have discovered that it's quite difficult to go to this unified energy because it doesn't give you details to connect with. And that's why they have seen very beautifully that the energy can be analyzed, it can be studied, and according to the yogic and tantric understanding, the energy first of all divides itself into three. I am one person who have said it often. Modern science does is far, far from knowing all the types of energy which exist on the face of this earth. Like, how do people do telepathy? Because telepathy is proven in parapsychology. It's known that it exists, but nobody understands how can you make telepathy with somebody who is in a submarine 5,000 kilometers away and 2,000 meters under the water. No, because there is no electromagnetic wave which can go there. So, and still telepathy does happen. It has been proven repeatedly. No? So, basically in yoga we'll say it's an energy which has not even been discovered yet. Exactly as electricity was practically unknown 300 years ago, and anybody would have shown something with electricity, it would have been like, wow, it would have been considered magic. In the same way, today maybe telepathy or some forms of clairvoyance, or levitation, the production of anti-gravitation, or the energy of the full moon when the full moon is coming, like in three, four days from now, it's considered like, uh, we don't have an explanation for that. Nevertheless, it's very interesting that the philosophers of science who are trying to analyze the energies, today they stop at three energies. There, were, there was a theory that there are four basic energies, gravitational, electromagnetic, the nuclear strong and the nuclear weak. And then they eliminated the nuclear weak because it's just a form, a combination of the others. And therefore, today, many philosophers of science, they will say there are three energies in this universe. Gravitational, electromagnetic, and the nuclear, the hard nuclear energy which keeps the elementary particles together and all the other things in the quantum levels of matter. It's very interesting because the tantric tradition says when the energy first divides, it divides into three. There are three basic energies. And that's why the yogis who want go to go back to the spring, the yogis who want to go back to oneness, they usually choose one of these paths. 
and this constitutes three of the four basic yogas which exist in the tradition of yoga. The first of this energy which inspired me to talk about this tonight, maybe in the next satsang, if things would uh, fit well, maybe I'll speak about the second one and the problems, the paths, the issues related to that one. The first one is called Icha Shakti in the Indian tradition. Icha is generally translated as will, the power, the energy called will, the energy of will of the divine, the number one Shakti, the para Shakti, the para form of the Shakti, the supreme, the highest of the three. And this Icha is such a slippery name, it's such a philosophical category, and it applies to so many things that it's most often misunderstood. Like, what is using this Icha? Because this Icha can be considered to be love, but love is such a terrible word, mutilated and prostituted in hundreds of forms. A lot of things are supposed to be love, you know. You go to a shop which is selling pornography, you know, and you have three men having sex with five chicks, and it is called uh, the ecstasy of love. What ecstasy? Just because some men are ejaculating, this is called ecstasy. You know, I thought, I thought ecstasy is samadhi. I thought Buddha was in ecstasy. Is ecstasy just an ejaculation and we are all having ecstasy from morning till evening? Isn't the word ecstasy applied to sexuality a fake word? A terribly fake word? And it comes because of people's skepticism. No, like, well, that's the only ecstasy that we can got, get. Well, I guess you haven't read Ramana Maharishi and you haven't read Patanjali because he's of a, they are of different opinions about what ecstasy a human being can reach and that the sexual pleasure is just the tip of the, it's the tip of a needle, it's the tip of the iceberg compared, no? And then the ecstasy of love. Well, three porno actors are boning five porno actresses, and that's called love. Oh, look how much they love each other. Of course, they get $3,000 in the end of the day, so it was a love which was very profitable financially, you know, and then they never see each other again, and one of them may have given a sexually transmitted disease to the others out of too much love. No? Like, what are you, the word love is a monstrosity to apply the word love to just some people making a porno movie. Ecstasy. Love. Like, why the fuck don't the people have measure? Like, somebody should simply say you can't put such a title on a miserable pornographic production, you know, when we know that there is nothing about ecstasy and there is nothing about love. Are you, it's fake. It's all fake. But see, this is the misuse of the names. and yeah. So we say love, 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 love. But in 25 different places on this earth, love means to totally different things. And if my cat is going to have three kittens, then she's going to love them. And she might even be able to die 
for her kittens. To put her chest first to die to protect the life of her kittens. Is that love? Yes and no. Because you cannot simply say that love is an instinct. For some people, love is just an instinct. And that instinct is the manifestation of love at the level of Svadhisthana Chakra, at the level of Muladhara Chakra. Is it love? Well, look what Jesus said. What love is there greater than when a friend puts his life for his friends and gives it willingly? Like Jesus says, if you can die for someone else, that's the supreme demonstration of love. He doesn't say that you have to die for other people. He doesn't say that you have to demonstrate it. But he says it happens sometimes that love is pushed to that level. And if it reaches that level, then it was love indeed, which he himself did. He, maybe he was schizophrenic and he didn't know what he was doing. But if you admit that he was God and he was omniscient and he had a spiritual mission, then he thought, Jesus thought, that he was dying for the people on planet earth. Either that's true or not, smarter people can decide on that. Spiritual people think that Jesus was the real deal and that he actually died for everybody in this room and for everybody on this planet and everybody can have a benefit from Jesus' sacrifice. So, therefore, he lived according to his teaching. He lived according to his word. He walked the talk. But wait a second, it happens in the animal world. And it's not accompanied by a conscious decision. Animals sometimes sacrifice their lives for their kids, for their cubs or whatever they are, out of an instinct, without thinking twice, without taking a decision. They just go and take the bullet. And they die. Sometimes they don't realize what's happening and they don't. Like they don't have the reason, the conscience, and thus... We are talking about love and we are using love for everything. From porno movies to Jesus, we are using the word love. But we are talking about very different things, all of them which come from this one Sanskrit concept, Icha, Icha Shakti, that there is something which is will and desire. It corresponds to the first movement of God from the Bible when he says that in the beginning the Spirit of God was floating over the darkness, the primordial waters, the Dumavati thing, and then God said, let there be light. Like, what was itching God? Why couldn't he just keep floating? Hey, buddy, you've been floating over the waters when there was no even time and space. Keep floating. Because look, you stopped floating and you said, let there be light. And we have a lot of people with a lot of problems around. Wouldn't it have been better if God would have stopped, kept floating and not said that stupid sentence, let there be light? Of course not. But it takes a very high wisdom to understand. So God in the beginning wills. We can even say that God desires. But then on the other hand, desire is what makes this world a hell and a nightmare. Buddha says it very clearly. The cause of reincarnation, the cause of ignorance, the cause of pain, is that people have desires. And the desires can be very beautiful. You come to a school of tantric yoga, 
you find yourself a beautiful sexual partner, you have tantric sex like rabbits for three weeks, and then you desire each other, because you got attached. And that desire is the beginning of the hell. You already have stepped off the path of Buddha, and you are heading towards hell. And you are in the middle of a tantric school, and you say, why does pain happen to people? No, We had people who, years ago, they complained, I came to Agama, and I did tantra, and I suffered. Yes, because of misusing the energies, not understanding the message. The message is very clear. You have to use that desire which God uses, which is the pure love, the pure will of creation, but you don't have to go into the twisted forms of desire. No? It is, I could give you so many ugly examples from literature, from movies, where people, because of desire, because of this, they became jealous, they became perverted, they became this, they became... They killed people, they tortured people, they made people suffer for years and years. No, what was the story? There was a father who found out that his daughter was very beautiful, and then he locked her in the basement of the house because he desired her not to go out in the world with a man, but to be his. And he fucked her for 30 years, keeping her prisoner in the basement of his house. Then, when at some point, the girl managed to escape and they caught the bastard. No, that was desire. But that was desire which was hell. So, when you say that Icha Shakti is the power of desire, you have to understand it correctly because it is at the level of divinity. It is a bond of love. It is without attachment. It is pure. It is wise. It is detached. And on the contrary, the derivatives of that desire, they produce attachment, they produce violence, they produce jealousy, they produce whatever, possessiveness, they produce hell, they produce samsara, they produce maya, they produce the hell in which we live. A thinker, a spiritualist like Buddha, is very radical. You know, he says, better go to Chom Tong, better go to Swan Mok, one of the Buddhist monasteries, two of the Buddhist monasteries from Thailand, just as an example, I'm not advertising for them, I'm just giving them because people know about those, just go to Swan Mok and spend there 20 years looking at a blank wall. Just go to a Zen monastery from Japan and kill all your desires and eat only as much as to sustain your physical body, sleep only as much as not to destroy your brain, don't do sex, don't do this, don't accumulate wealth, don't do anything. Whenever you feel that, then just look at the wall more hours every day. No? There are methods which are head-on, like destroy the desire. But it's paradoxical, because God created this world via desire, only that it's a very refined form. And in this way, we understand that this desire, this icha, that we call love, sometimes, because love is a, one of the forms of it, is manifested on all the chakras. And that's why the path of desire can include even the desire on Muladhara and Zvadhisthana. I have got a new sexual partner. The union between us has been so blissful. I finally found somebody with whom I fit 
amazingly. Well, sex was just out of this world. And then normally I have desire. But that desire is going to take me to the crown chakra. That desire is going to save me. And therefore, it's okay to indulge in that desire. But if you go into a Christian monastery, they will shake their head and they say, My son, my daughter, you have been misguided by this orange Romanian guy who is preaching Tantra and he has filled your head with nonsense. Don't go there. Don't have sex. Don't do this. All these tantric paths, it sounds like it belongs to the devil. It's the devil's delusion. It's the devil's work. It's just meant to ensnare you and catch you in some major delusion. It's a trick of the demons. Don't, don't do. You know, it's not valid. So for some people it would work. Some people would see the continuity. And some people would not see the continuity. And they would say, only the desire from the level of anahata, like love, love from the heart, the love of the heart, that one is acceptable. That one we can accept. But below that, ooh, that's not love anymore. That's why it's very difficult from a yogic standpoint to talk about the path of Icha Shakti, the path of love. That some people in their spirituality, they have a desire, a will. We call it very much aspiration. No, like, I don't know why, but I want God. I want God, I want God, I want God, I want God. With every fiber of my being, I want God. If you would cut me in a hundred thousand small cubes of flesh and blood and bone, every one of those cubes will want God still. I want God like I want a drug, like I want medication, like I want... I simply long for God. My life without God seems to have no meaning. I'm afraid about a life without God. I don't want to be without. Then I'm just eating and sleeping and procreating. And I don't want. Then I commit suicide like Jean-Paul Sartre said. It's more simple to die today than to continue living, fighting in a world, the struggle for survival and all the Darwinistic shits and all the... You know, like, why should I do that when life has no meaning from the very beginning? Why should I sweat and bleed for 80 years so that in the end of this I will find nothing. Just because I am afraid to confront the inevitability of it. That there is nothing in the beginning, there is nothing in the end. And the whole thing is just a struggle without meaning. Then why should I struggle? Putting a bullet in your head or cutting your veins in hot water and let the blood slowly, slowly flow out of your body without any pain or something. Inhaling some carbon monoxide and dying with some beautiful dreams like they do in Japan or something. It's like you can go. You can simply just go. Why not just go? Why stay around and struggle? You struggle because there is a meaning to that struggle. Because there is a light in the end of the tunnel. And the people who don't wish to commit suicide, they don't wish to commit suicide because intuitively they know that even if they don't know, still something seems to be there. There is some intuitive feeling of that. And that's why we long, we want. The path of Icha Shakti is not very much based on intelligence. It's based on a longing. 
I want God. Did Ramakrishna explain why he wanted God so much? No. People thought he was crazy. He just wanted and he simply said, I'm sorry that you don't want what I want. No. Like Rumi, he said, now I found you and all those who are not looking like I did, now they are sorry. Because until he became enlightened, Rumi was a weirdo. After he became enlightened, Rumi was the champion. No? So, therefore, Rumi considered that he gained the big prize. Maybe he was schizophrenic and he didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe all the spiritual people were seriously mentally ill. But in the world of spirituality, the people who reach those, they consider themselves amply rewarded. They consider themselves like, yes, I hit jackpot. Yes, I did it. Buddha thought and thought and when he reached nirvana, he thought he had found the solution to pain, the truth, the enlightenment and the other names which are given to it. And that's why one of the paths which we follow and uh, nobody is a purist, like I follow the path of Icha Shakti, but I don't follow the path of Jnana Shakti at all. It isn't. It's very difficult to draw lines and to say this person is 100% this and 0% of the others. But, so it's a mixture. But there is a predominance. There is a majority. And thus, for the people who on their majority follow the path of Icha Shakti, that's the path of Bhakti, that's the path of devotion. That's the path of longing. You're longing for God like you lost something wonderful. You remember archetypally that you had something wonderful. That you were in paradise. That you were at home. That you were complete. That you were perfect. And somehow that is lost. And you find yourself in a miserable world like ours, struggling like an animal for survival. How do I fight with other people? How do I assert my personality? How do I put bread and butter on my table? How do I do this? How do I do that? And then you don't even know why you struggle. Why am I bothering to struggle? I better stop eating and in a hundred days I'm dead anyway, you know. It's like I don't even need to commit suicide. I just need to stop struggling for food and for other things. And either I become like living with light, like what was Giribala or whatever that woman from Yogananda's book was, like Therese Neumann from Europe, or at least I will stop struggling, you know. I refuse to live a life in which I'm struggling like a worm. I'm wriggling there to survive. Why am I wriggling to survive? Because I don't even know what's, if there is an end of the tunnel and what's in the end of that tunnel. Thus, the path of Icha, the path of love, the path of Bhakti, it's a path which is not based, it's based on some sort of intuitive feeling. I love, why do you love God? I can't explain. I love God and that's it. You love God, you are on the same page with me. You don't love God, you think how weird this guy is. There is no solution to that conundrum. There's no solution to that dilemma. Exception made that, you know, there were people who loved Jesus instantaneously when they saw him. And there were people who hated Jesus. There were people who definitely disliked Jesus, you know. 
If I speak about Ramakrishna, you can say Ramakrishna was a weirdo. But come on, we have some people in the history of the world who have been almost perfect. Like when you read the history about them, they were almost perfect, incredible people. No? Why would you hate a person like Jesus? No? That's a deeply deep. Jesus said, you hate me because the demons hate me because I'm spoiling their business. You know, and therefore you hate me because the demons are inspiring you to hate me. No, otherwise, you wouldn't hate me. If you would be with God, you would love me because I come from God. I am coming to talk to you about God. So, the path of Icha, which is the path of love, of desiring God, but desiring God in a healthy way, is, of course, having so many twists. Even this desiring of God, sometimes in the beginning, it can be pretty blind. There are people who, when they start their path on evolution, they start it egoistically. Many of us, I have said it many times in my life, I don't say that it is now my opinion. But when I was young, I said it very often. If people want to make the Third World War and kill 99% of the population of the world, go ahead, see if I care. No, go kill yourselves, you know, you can all die. You can all throw yourself into the ocean and die. No, like, it was a, a sort of a selfish attitude. Like, I want to wake up my crown chakra. I want to taste the real states of ecstasy and nirvana. And if nobody else cares about it, they can go shoot themselves through the head. I don't care about them. They shouldn't pay any attention to me. No, I am a fanatic who is looking for my thing. And if they want to, you know, if they dislike me or something, I don't give a shit. So in the beginning, this aspiration, it can take even egoistic forms. Not egoistic in the meaning that I would kill somebody so that I can reach nirvana. That is not the case, because spirituality from the beginning, it starts with yama and niyama, it starts with the Ten Commandments, it starts with moral and ethical rules, so that if you want to be a spiritual person, you practice certain standards of morality and ethics, in which the first rule is, first, don't harm anybody. Try not to harm somebody. Ah, that... I did too much lotus pose and I damaged my knee. You know what? God is indulgent and says, if you are an idiot and you hurt yourself, up till a certain point, that's permissible. Hurt yourself. If you are too humpty dumpty like this, hurt yourself. You will learn the lesson. You will suffer. Then you will say, I will not do the lotus pose again for the next three years. Nah, nah, nah. Then you will learn your lesson. It will be a painful lesson and so on. But don't hurt other people. Yeah? Do to others only what you want to be done to yourself. That's the first law of ethics. No? That you should never do something which you wouldn't like to have done to yourself. No. If you like that people should address you strictly, then you can be strict to other people. If you would like that people should address you through their words and deeds, mercifully, then you should also be merciful. Whatever you want to get from the universe, you have to give it to the others, to the universe. And in this way, the people practicing 
the path of Icha Shakti, going back to the One Shakti, going back to God through the channel of Icha, through the channel of desire, they have aspiration, they pray, they long for God, they desire God in a healthy way. Maybe in the beginning they desire God in a bit of a selfish way. Like, I don't know about you guys, I want to see God and that's it. And so on. And like there is not too much compassion and not too much bodhisattva spirit into this. And for these people, love takes many ways. I have been asked to comment a little bit on love. Because ultimately we see that all the yin loves all the yang. All the minus desires all the plus. The north magnetic pole is attracted to the south magnetic pole of another magnet. Plus is attracted to minus. The opposites always attract each other. And when we as human beings are attracted to God, to sex, to food, to whatever, there is there a desire. It's a manifestation of Icha Shakti. And that's why this Icha Shakti, either it's healthy and controlled by our conscience, or not, it's out of balance, it's basically existing on each and every chakra. The great yogis of Kashmir, they could not feel it when they went into Sahasrara. If you will bother to read that book on Bhakti, which I translated many, many years ago, there are a few brochures around, it's a translation from some Sanskrit commentaries from Kashmiri Shaivis, that the Kashmirian masters when they went into nirvana, then there was no desire. Icha Shakti had stopped. And then they said, Am I sitting here in God? Because the level of consciousness for them, it was obvious. No, you can't be there and not notice that you are there. It's consciousness. It's pure consciousness. So you are aware, but I don't feel the love anymore because my arrow of love has reached the target. And then there is no more purpose for stretching the bow because I'm already there. And they simply said, it's not right. I got addicted to this Icha Shakti. I got addicted to this love. And then they would simply step out of the state of union and simply said, that's great. Now I desire you again. No? Like, it's like a drug. I want to feel the Icha Shakti. I want to feel the longing. I want to feel the aspiration. I want to feel the love, you know, and you say, well, is it more important than the state of nirvana? No, not really. But it's a sort of, it's a humoristic way, it's a spiritual sense of humor to express the fact that when you want to be alive, you are alive exactly through this longing, exactly through this aspiration, that I have a longing for meaning, I have a longing for the infinite, I have a longing for freedom, for omniscience, for liberation, uh, immortality, whatever you want to call that for the kingdom of heaven, for the Father in heaven, if you want to consider a paternal image for this God figure, for this God reality. And therefore, on the path of love, on the path of Icha, we have to see it because... I was once confronted, I had one of the teachers which I encountered in my life, 
was uh, a mixture of uh, a very brilliant person and also a person with some neurosis, like some unresolved emotional conflict, because I can give you two examples of how this thing... He, for example, wanted that people should experience love through Anahata Chakra. And he considered that if people had a Manipura Chakra, that was not love. And somebody asked him, what would you do if you were sent to live in Japan or in some country where there is no Anahata Chakra too much? One percent, maybe, but there is not too much in their daily life and in their daily culture. There are there men who love their kids, men who love their wives, in a very different way than they would do it in Eastern Europe. In a very different anybody who went and lived in Japan for one year knows how different their society is actually from what we have in Europe. And then other societies can also be extremely different as well. Just take the Thai society, which most of the Farangs never get to understand because it's very different in many, many respects. And those people would fit the code of Jesus. They could love someone so much that they could give their food, they could give their safety, they could give their comfort, they could give their life for their children, beloved people or something. But they don't do it from Anahata. They don't do it this way. They do it in a Manipuristic way, like a Japanese woman can say, it is my giri, it is my sense of duty that I will die before my husband dies. And then she dies, she goes and takes a bullet. But that fits the definition of love. But it is done, the person has called it duty. It's my duty, but that duty did exactly the same thing which love would have done. So we can say that that person had love and sacrificed themselves out of love? Yes, but it's love on Manipura. It's Manipuristic love. It's Manipura Chakra love. And Manipura Chakra love can be very, very different in the manifestation than the Anahata type of love. And the people who approach this clean Manipura they did an effort of consciousness. To be a samurai in Japan, it meant to serve. It's the Bushido, it's the path of the Buddha. You are a samurai because you want to reach nirvana. And therefore, the duty of the samurai is to serve. And the samurai who doesn't have a master cannot exist. That's why in the old days, the term of ronin Samurai without master was considered to be an insult. If you are a ronin, you stopped being a samurai. The samurai is only the one who serves somebody bigger than them. You have to go into service. And then you will have to obey. If your master tells you, today it's time for you to die, then you die. A ronin doesn't have anybody who can... Ronin means vagabond samurai. Samurai without a master. A ronin doesn't have anybody who can tell him, now you should die. No? Then he is not serving anybody. Life and death. And that's why this was considered to be a heavy yoke. Love is difficult on Anahata. And love is difficult on Manipura. 
and on Svadhisthana and on Vishuddha. And on each chakra we have this desire and this desire, especially on the low chakras, is very addictive. Now, all of you have probably tried in your life good sex, like really, really good sex, and you know it's making you addicted. If you have good sex for six months, then you want to have it for the rest of your life. And when you don't have it, you are depressed. Many people, when they come to Tantra, they never had good sex in all their lives. And then it takes one month, one year, five years, before they have the real Maituna, the real divine sex, the real sacred sex. And then they get addicted. They say, oh my God, I never thought it could be like that. No? And then everything inside you says, more, more, more. Now you found God, you grab God by the ankle of his leg, you know, you should hold on. You should hold on for dear life. No, because now you found paradise, at least a diluted form of paradise. And that's why the path of Icha Shakti is many things. It is the path of Bhakti. It is the path of aspiration. Even the sexual path in Tantra is under it. And you have to meditate. How do people love on Muladhara? Take a little hint. Dogs are on Muladhara. Do you think dogs are loving and lovely animals? Well, the way a dog loves you and the way you love a dog sometimes is on Muladhara. And thus, okay, you are going to say, well, I have a bit of Anahata, so I am also loving my dog from Muladhara because that's what he understands, but I also give him some Anahata. That's your privilege of being a human being and being, having the capacity to use more chakras than one. So what is love on Muladhara? How do you love an elephant? How does an elephant love you? How do you love a worm? How do you love a hamster? How does a hamster love you back? What is this primitive, the most primitive love which is coming from the biology of nature? Then Svadhisthana is already the sensual love. It's love together with sensuality. There is sensuality to it. That means the dog, unless you teach it this skill, the dog is not very much on Svadhisthana. They are smelly, they roll through the dirt, they eat caca on the turd, on the sly, on the street. They do all you cannot say that the dog is a very sensual animal. It's many cultures, it's considered an impure animal. And if a dog wants to give you a kiss with its tongue, you cannot stop thinking that six hours before the same tongue was licking a shit. You know, and now it's licking your face or something like this. No, you can come up with scientific excuses like the dog's saliva is very sterile and whatever. And of course, but still, you know. So, therefore, the sensuality is another story. Are there animals which give you sensuality, which relate with you sensually? Maybe you have tried swimming with the dolphins. Try swimming with a dolphin if you can get that entertainment and see that the dolphins have a skin, a membrane and a presence on Svadhisthana. If you manage to be really soft with them, the dolphins give you something on Svadhisthana.
I don't want to mention the obvious thing with cats and so on. That's why on purpose I go to the dolphin as a out of the box, as an example which is out of the box, so you can think a little bit about it. No, you can uh, see there is this beautiful movie, I think it's called What Ashes and Snow or something. There is a dance and music video, um, maybe Ashes and Snow, maybe, where people are in the water, dancing with whales, with dolphins, with even with elephants, paradoxically, and so on. And it, the whole movie is a Svadistanistic ecstasy. It's a very, it's like modern dance mixed with ecology and nature and aesthetical sense and beauty and everything. There, there is a lot of Svadistana. No, you could say that's an example of the love on Svadistana. If you don't want to take the porno movie, which was called The Ecstasy of Love. The porno movie called The Ecstasy of Love. If the lovemaking is made beautifully and satisfactorily indeed, which of course in the porno movies it's not done, it's just a financial business. But if it is done, then it could be love on Svadistana. You can look at the kiss of Rodin. Rodin made a man and a woman kissing passionately. No, that's a sculpture which has a bit of muladhara because Auguste Rodin was a muladharistic sculpture, but it's also a lot of Svadistana. It's one of the most erotic sculptures because that, that kiss, you, it's really a kiss when you look at those two human forms kissing. They are beautiful. There is something beautiful in that. It's love on Svadistana. But there is love on Manipura, where people serve. Again, the samurai culture is a beautiful example. The knights from Europe, the kshatriyas from India, and others doing love on Manipura. Love on Manipura means that somebody has to keep the fort. Somebody has to keep the things running. Somebody has to keep the ethics. When Socrates started saying to the Athenian citizens that they are hypocrites and animals. He said, I walk on the street and I see every man accompanied by a pig. And unfortunately, which means the animal part of man, of each man and woman. And he said, unfortunately, it's not the man riding on the pig. It's the pig riding on the man. Like he simply said, you, my co-fellow Athenians, my fellow Greeks, you are possessed by the pig inside you. There is a pig in each one of you, and that pig is ruling our city. Those pigs are the ones ruling. We live like pigs. We are not... No, he decried. They killed him. But he felt he had the duty to stand up and say, nobody is... everybody is a hypocrite. Everybody is lying that we are wonderful. We are so... I don't see that we are wonderful. I see that we are pigs. You know, and somebody has to say it, even if they cost them their lives. No, even the message of Jesus is a message of love, but nevertheless, sometimes Jesus is like very fiery, angry, accusative. He accuses religion, hypocrisy, people, and different things without any hesitation. So, there is love on Manipura as well. And again, look in the samurai tradition and others and others, to see how love manifests on Manipura. On the three lower levels, it's very difficult to get detached from it, especially on the lower two, on Muladhara and Zvadistana. That's why most religions, 
they don't touch that. Tantric yoga, sexual tantra does touch that with special rules, but otherwise they don't touch it. This Manipura love, like selfless service, making merit, samurai and knights and so on, it has been touched. It has had many downfalls, like many people got it wrong. Many people abused it and turned it into violence, turned it into dictatorship and tyranny and other such things. Therefore, it's still risky, but it's more included in the majority of the religions of this planet. And then only we come to the love spoken about by Jesus and Ramakrishna and Rumi and the likes of them. No? And um, this love is the love, love, the actual love, the proper love, the love properly called love, the love from Anahata Chakra, and it's reasonably rare. In Kali Yuga, especially in the capitalistic society, which is teaching people to mind their own business and to take care of themselves, there is almost no selflessness. The selflessness is done in a very manipuristic way, like when Bill Gates is donating, uh, I don't know, $100,000 to a children's charity, it's not done from anahata. It's not done with love. It's done as a service, as a manipuristic service. And therefore, the capitalistic society has a talent of killing Anahata Chakra. That's why some societies which have more Anahata Chakra, like the Italians, the Mediterranean people, they are not very good at capitalism. And some people who are very good at capitalism, like the Americans, the British, and others, the Anglo-Saxons in general, they have very little Anahata. Because Anahata is pushing people to do things from another point from another perspective love on anahata chakra is very ideal and very beautiful and very rare to reach i was having a discussion with somebody who disliked some aspects from the shakespearean movie the franco cefirelli movie the taming of the shrew because it was done with two very Svadistanistic actors, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Barton, and they presented a relationship, a turbulent relationship, on Svadistana. We don't know if Shakespeare wrote it with a thought to Anahata or Vishuddha, but the way Zephirelli did it with Burton and with Elizabeth Taylor is a Svadistanistic movie. The same Zephirelli he did Romeo and Juliet. And when you see the scene of the balcony, the way they love each other and the way they warm each other and they end making love with each other and they are just two kids of 15 years old each, that's a beautiful Svadistana. Romeo and Juliet, at least the way it is in the Zeffirelli movie, which is the most famous production, is a Romeo and Juliet on Svadistana, not on Anahata. That's why, uh, of course, that's why they are also star-crossed lovers and their relationship is full of suffering and pain. It's not the relationship 
of, uh, for example, Virgin Mary, she learned to love Jesus on Anahata. The climax being when Jesus was dead in her arms. Then you cannot love Jesus on Svadhisthana. Then you cannot love Jesus on Manipura. Then you have lost everything and you have to be detached and then you have to love Jesus through the heart. And therefore, a woman like Virgin Mary, she learned how not to be in Anahata and she learned the hard way. She learned through pain. She learned through suffering. And thus, the path of Anahata, love in Anahata, is already very rare and sometimes people have to sweat some blood to reach there because the society already does not give us beautiful examples. How many people know exactly how Ramakrishna was in love with Sarada Devi and was worshipping her? And Ramakrishna had a huge anahata and we can be sure. How do we know how did Rumi love his beloveds, his wife, children, friends, whatever they were, whatever were the people that he loved most? How do we know? No, it's only stories, bits and pieces. How do we know how Francis of Assisi was loving Clara, his beloved Clara? No, and how did he love the lepers and the world and uh, his disciples and people and all that? That's why when we reach to Anahata Chakra, love on Muladhara, everybody understands and finds it ridiculous, inferior and animalistic. Nevertheless, there are people who say, you know what, I don't trust human beings. Dogs, they can love you. Dogs can really love you. You know what, I love dogs. Those are people who have no Anahata, not a harmony on Manipura and Svadhisthana, and they just find a simple animal. I give a biscuit to my dog, and the dog is licking my hands gratefully. That's love on Muladhara. And some people are limited to that. They say that I can understand. I can receive and I can give. No? On Svadhisthana, it's already much more complex and the whole human environment is full of this Svadhisthana water element. Love on Manipura, it starts being vertical. Like, would you stop just kissing your dog and fucking your wife and become a samurai and give your life for an ideal? For that you have to have a spine. For that you already have to be singular. You cannot go with a crowd. You have to learn to be alone. You have to learn to go against the crowd. You have to be, you know, everybody wants to steal something. I will not steal. I will keep my own. But you will be hungry. Yes, I will stay hungry, but I will be hungry in an honorable way. How many people do that? You look in the world, how many people are willing to sacrifice things for a principle? There you can see if that love on Manipura is... Then love on Anahata. How many people are able to go in the footsteps of Jesus and Rumi and Ramakrishna and others, Laleshwari and others like them? It's already very rare and very precious. And when you catch it, you know, and you can't forget it, 
because the flavor of this love from anahata is already having something superhuman. It's like you are in paradise already. This selflessness, this abnegation, it's like you are with one foot in paradise already. You are living in the kingdom of heaven almost. Then love does manifest on Vishuddha. But if love on Anahata is rare, love on Vishuddha is super rare. This is, these are levels of love which the deities, the demigods, they manifest in their worlds. You heard maybe that Tibetan yogis, sometimes they manage to cultivate a love relationship with a Dakini. Well, that Dakini will love you back on Vishuddha. And if you cannot love her on Vishuddha, then she considers you a dog. You are inferior. Your love is dirty, miserable, inferior, offensive. No? Like some people say, I want my dog to love me, but I don't want it to lick me too much, you know, because I still, the saliva of the dog, I have some reservations about it, you know. It's exactly like this. You can love a Dakini from Manipura or from Svadhisthana, but it will be like the saliva of a dog for her. It will be like, okay, a little bit is acceptable, but let's get to Vishuddha. Let's get to some real pure thing there. The love of Vishuddha Chakra is a love based on purity. It's a love based on knowledge. It's a love based on pure knowledge. It's a love based on creativity. It's a love based on aesthetics. It's a love based on pure science. It's a love based on something superior, exactly like the request of marriage which Pierre Joliot Curie did to Maria Sklodowska Curie, for those of you who remember that movie about the life of Marie Curie. He said, you are so stable that you and I are like natrium and chloride. And when you mix us together, you get table salt, natrium chloride, and it's one of the most stable substances in the universe. Therefore, he said, I would like you to be my wife. (laughs) He didn't tell her, you have incredible boobs, and the secret is that I have a schlong long down to my knee, and if I put it in you, you are going to sing like a nightingale. That's not the way he conquered Marie Curie. He conquered Marie Curie comparing them with natrium and chloride. If you can't take that, then you don't understand what Vishuddha Chakra is. You don't understand what archetypes are. You don't understand what purity of mind and purity of science is. And that's not the highest form of love. That's love at the last but one level, at the Vishuddha level. And it's the love of the demigods. It's the love of the Deva Loka of the world of the gods, and it's superhuman already. And beyond that, there is, of course, the love of Shiva and Parvati. There is a love of Arda Narishvara, Shiva that is half male, half female. It's the love of Shiva for Shakti. It's the love of the Yang for the Yin, and of the Yin for the Yang. It's the polarity par excellence, and this is the love of the great gods. 
They are gods which belong to the fifth plane of the universe, to the causal, and they are gods which belong to the greater causal, which in Sanskrit is called Mahakarana. Karana Sharira is the causal body, and or Ananda Mayakosha in yoga. And above that, that sixth level is called in different ways. Some people call it Buddhi or something, and some people call the causal Karana, and the sixth body, they call it Maha Karana, like something even bigger, one order, one size bigger, one degree bigger, but we cannot describe it, so we just call it Maha Karana. Well, there are divine entities like the Mahavidyas, which live at the level of Maha Karana. They live immediately next to the divine consciousness. And what is the love which Mahakali has for Mahakala? When you understand that, you have crossed the path of Tantra. It is the purpose of the technology of Maituna that men and women have sex on Muladhara, they have sex on Zvadhisthana, they have sex on Manipura, they have sex, and they reach to have sex on Ajna. And when you reach to have sex on Ajna, then you will understand what Shiva does to Parvati, what the love of Vishnu for Lakshmi is, and all the other similar level things. That's the love. But that love, some people said, you know, on the lower two chakras you have sex, on the middle two chakras you have love, and on the higher two chakras you have prayer. Like love manifested as sex, love manifested as selflessness as love, and love manifested as bhakti, as prema, as prayer, no, the divine love. In India they actually have different names for all three of them in Sanskrit. They are not called love. They are called kama, prema, bhakti. They are called other things precisely because of that. So, on the path, tonight I wanted to share with you an, a different angle. I was trying to show you an angle to evolution that as you are moving into spirituality, many of you have aspiration, longing, icha shakti, and that manifests as forms of love. But some of those loves go through sexual tantra, some of that love goes through karma yoga, through service, being a samurai of yoga. <clears throat> Some of that love goes into this airy thing, like Rumi. You can just sit there and sing praise to God and sing love and be a madman of love like Ramakrishna. Like very few people will understand how are you consumed by such an amazing feeling. Like Kahlil Gibran when writing about love, and so many others, some stronger, some weaker. Kahlil Gibran was not an enlightened being, but he was a brilliant poet who touched significantly the love on Anahata, and he was able to speak about love on Anahata because he was knowing it, he was experiencing it, he was feeling it, and he could speak from the middle of that feeling about it. And so, the path of love manifests all these aspects, and even if in the beginning it's more animalistic, more egoistic, there is a path of sublimation, 
sublimation, refining love, making it become more and more spiritual. And in this way, I hope that now seeing it from this prism, like it's the path of Icha Shakti, and through Icha Shakti, you reach to Maha Shakti, to Adi Shakti, to Para Shakti, the One Shakti, the Holy Spirit of God, the consort of the Shiva consciousness, as in Shiva and Shakti. That's why meditate carefully, where is your love? Do you manifest love? Is that love manifested as healthy desire or unhealthy desire? Can you sublime it? Can you purify it? Are you going to kill some inferior forms simply because you are afraid, like the Buddhist monks do? They simply say, you don't do that, you don't do that, you don't do that. And that form of desire slowly, slowly withers and dies. Are you going to go there? Or are you going to sublime it organically, like in the tantric tradition? And when you are in the tantric tradition, do you get stuck in Muladhara, Svadhisthana, maybe Manipura? Or are you truly subliming and discovering the heart, discovering the purity of Vishuddha Chakra, discovering the unspeakable greatness, the inexpressible greatness of Ajna Chakra, describing the global love, the love, the polarity of Shiva and Shakti. And then you know how you are following this path of desire. Perhaps, as I said, if the planets are aligning the right way, next time I will give you some hints about the path of knowledge, as in Jnana Shakti, the path of action, like in Kriya Shakti. So in this way you can see how all the basic yogas have appeared. There are four root yogas, and the first three of them come directly from the division of energy into the three aspects of Icha, Jnana and Kriya and in this way you can understand your path better and you can understand what to do in which direction to emphasize maybe you are not very much possessed by Icha Shakti maybe you are possessed by the desire to know by knowledge it's still a desire but it's like a hunger for knowledge and then How does that manifest? Which is the path of knowledge? In the case of Buddha, Buddha never spoke too much about desire or love or God as a personal aspect. Buddha described his state, Buddhi, Buddhi, is a state of enlightenment, which is a word extremely close to the planet Mercury in Indian astrology. So it's a mercurial, mercurian uh, approach to spirituality based on data, information, knowledge. Some people would choose omniscience compared to the universal love. It's more relevant for them. And that's why we will discuss about the other forms of love. I think of, uh, of spiritual path. I think it is enough for tonight. I made a starting. It took me a while to get started because I wanted to introduce 
the fact that people on spiritual path, they have a motivation. And tonight I managed to speak about the motivation of Icha Shakti, of being enlivened by aspiration, will, love, desire, or whichever way you want to call it. And I hope you will not uh, uh, put down the lower chakras. Because even in the lower chakras, there exists an impulse for being reunited, getting back the miraculous thing which you once upon a time feel that you had, and you lost it, and you are lost in the labyrinth of Maya, and you are going to get it back, you are going to find your way back home. That is the path of longing, the bhakti, the ichashakti. Enough for tonight. Meditate on these things, see how they apply to you. I hope we'll explore together the other realms. Thank you all for joining tonight.